baseball game, a day in a park with friends and family, fishing in a remote stream, work, travels, providing for loved ones, or heading out for adventures. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. The original Guide to Men's Health is presented by the Washington State Urology Society to help take you through the steps necessary to get the most out of life. If you have invested in a retirement plan for your future, why not invest in your body? After all, it makes better sense to retire healthy and enjoy your future. These podcasts are a guide for how to take care of yourself. If you take care of your car and maintain it, why not do the same for your personal machine, your body? If you know you should but haven't yet, the information in these podcasts contains some easy recommendations for where, when, and how to get started. Follow the podcast as we explore men's health with renowned experts and embark on a journey towards better health. On today's episode of the original Guide to Men's Health, we review depression with psychologist Dr. Daniel Singer. Dr. Singer gives us an overview of depression and some useful practical tips for how to treat it and how to recognize it. We then further explore mental health in our second part with Dr. Jeffrey Sung, a psychiatrist, who gets more deeply into specifics of depression from a psychiatrist's point of view. And also, we speak with him about suicide. Stay tuned. Take notes. This is an important episode of the original Guide to Men's Health. Mental health. One of the more important issues for men with a myriad of presentations. Today, we're with Dr. Daniel Singer, PhD, licensed mental health therapist in the state of Washington. Dr. Singer completed a fellowship at Oregon State and specializes in the counseling and treatment and mental health diagnosis. He's been in practice for over 30 years and carries expertise in mental health issues. Dr. Singer, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, first let's talk about, do men know when they're in trouble with mental health issues? Would somebody actually recognize that they need an assistance or is it a loved one or a family member or is all possible? The issue is it offers a really interesting question because I would say most men do not realize when they're depressed. And this is what becomes a, a difficult issue in treatment because it's hard to get men who come into treatment to not only recognize they're depressed, but it's also hard to get them to accept that they're depressed. So it's very important to take a little step back and rather than letting someone know that they are depressed, you've got to get into some of the clues and signs and changes in behavior to be able to get the person to say, hey, you know, that isn't who I used to be and I'm not used to being this person. Then the intervention becomes, well, who do you think this person is? And then the person begins to discuss things or feelings or thoughts that are of the nature of a depressive diagnosis. Then you might want to look at the person and say, <clears throat> well, Bill, John, Joe, what do you think is going on? And then after a while, the person will say, well, doctor, maybe I'm depressed. And then you begin 
to explore the diagnosis. But say we have a <clears> listener, <throat> what would be some of the clues that they might even consider that something's different for them? Well, I'm a person who thinks in threes. And there are three very, very big clues. And the first one is grooming behavior. We all know this. If a person changes their grooming behavior, for example, very, very easy example. If you were used to showering after you worked out, maybe you'd skip your shower and shower the next day and go home without a shower. I know that sounds small, but it's a little clue because it begins to build. Grooming behavior, not taking care of your cleanliness, not taking care of your hair, wearing clothes that might not have been washed, wearing the same clothes three or four days in a row. If you don't pay attention to your grooming behavior, that is one of the first clues that someone might be depressed. And we begin to explore that. The second thing is change of appearance. If a person had some type of a routine that they were in, and then all of a sudden the routine began to change, where their clothes changed, where their facial hair changed, where they began to grow their hair longer, where their appearance began to change, we begin to really look into that very carefully. And the third thing is, of course, which is very, very obvious, it has to do with eating habits. How well are you eating? What are you eating? Are you, are you going through the day and, 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 Doc, I just couldn't eat lunch today, and skipping your lunch. These three things are real signs of depression. And as we explore these three things, of course, they tailspin into other things. And we're able to at least look at some of the top three. We can look at whether you're exercising or not, whether you're affectionate with your wife or not, if the kids are avoiding you. Any small change in behavior begins to snowball and build. And we're, we as therapists are able to look at that person and say, what do you think is going on? What prompted this change in behavior? And then we get to explore the areas of depression. It's much easier to explore it that way because it allows the person to give a snapshot to himself rather than me saying, hey, Bill, I think you're depressed. And that'll, that'll result in ultimate denial. So we have to make this person take a look at themselves through their own mirror to be able to explore the feeling that they have. Someone who's lost the appreciation they had for things they used to love to do. So somebody who likes sports, who stops being involved in sports. Somebody who liked playing music or listening to music, who stops doing something that they used to be passionate about. Would those be clues? Yes, any change in behavior. And what we've got to realize, and this is probably the biggest misconception in depression, it doesn't mean you're really, really depressed. Depression has, like love, varying degrees. Depression, we often, the, the, the common question that is asked of the physician is, you feel pain. The person says yes. And you say on a scale of one to 10, is it a three, is it an eight, is it a five? 10 being the worst. So we therapists say, if you're depressed on a scale of one to 10, what do you feel? Is it a two, is it a three? However, what we need to understand is that because the diagnosis of depression is so complex, it moves from bipolar, which is the most misunderstood depressive diagnosis out there, to manic depressive, which is huge in mood swings. We look at the person and we need them to understand that you can be depressed, but you're not depressed on a scale of 10. However, if you don't handle your depression, then what happens is the depression snowballs. So let's go back. If you don't handle your depression, 
then it complicates itself and becomes more intense. If you don't handle your depression, it becomes complex. And, and this is what's very interesting, if I can take, a, can I take a little slide to sure. the right? And this is, this is how patients get well with me. I want you to understand, as an audience listening, this is not a thought out of left field. Depression is a good thing. Now ask me why. <laughs> because it shows you're human. It shows you're human, but use your depression the way we use signs in the road. If you come to a stop sign, what do you do? You stop. If you come to a yield sign, you, you yield. If you're depressed, it means do something different. The depression can also be a normal feeling. It doesn't mean that you're, as lay people would say, doctor, I'm crazy, doctor, I'm nuts. No, if you're depressed, go to a different restaurant, see a different movie, try a different sport, try a different pair of clothes, because you've got to realize there are three stages of life that cause depression. From teenage into adulthood, from adulthood into the working life and family life, and then what happens when you become an empty nester and your beautiful children move away? These are normal aspects of depression. So here's a real good way an empty nester would handle depression. I'm going to downsize and travel. Here's the way somebody who enters the adult world handles depression. I'm going to find a job I like even though I hate working. So depression is also a way that we can utilize this diagnosis to help us become better people and more positive. Now, I think a lot of guys would be hesitant to admit depression. It shows vulnerability. And yet, how would they go about admitting their, they might need help? Well, you've just, you've just asked the biggest question out there, and that is, when do you need help? Yeah. For example, my friend is depressed because he's getting older and he can't play sports the way he used to play. Now, he doesn't need help. He just needs to alter the way he plays and alter his lifestyle and maybe eat a little differently. And if he loves playing soccer, he can't play every day anymore because he's in his late 50s. But he can play twice a week if he keeps himself in shape. And then there are the people that say, when do I need help and how do I do that? There are three things that happen. Number one, a person will admit it to themselves if they're in enough pain. And we sometimes don't know how far rock bottom is for folks. This is what the tough thing is. The second thing is, is that it can be done through an intervention with family and friends. And the third thing, of course, as you're sitting here talking to me, it comes from a physician or it comes from a psychologist or a counselor or a social worker that says, I think it might be a good idea if you talk to somebody. And the common question I ask folks is, so, so, so Bill, you got a lot going on in your life. Who do you talk to? And the answer is usually nobody. And then I say, well, you know, it wouldn't kill you to go talk to somebody. And then we come to the other stage of depression to folks that are very depressed folks that are organically depressed, that require chemical intervention, folks where there's a history of depression and they can get up on a sunny day and still be depressed and don't know why. Depression comes in so many varying degrees, Dr. Pellman, that this is a very, very difficult diagnosis to understand. But the bottom line is, is that if you reach out to the outside sources that are available to you, to include the internet that has this information, I just went through a surgery myself. And the first thing I did before the surgery is I immediately read all about it because I wanted to know how to prepare for it. I wanted to know what to do after the surgery, and I wanted to know how to take care of myself. Was I depressed? Of course I was. Did I admit it to myself? And I'll say this on the podcast. I did not. 
<clears throat> I did not because I'm strong. I'm a, I'm a strong dude, man. I'm a tough guy. I can do anything. And then my buddy looked at me, put his arm around me. This is a true story. And he said, and I said, what's up, Ross? And he says, I got to ask you a question. And he said, Dan, you've been going through a lot this year. Who do you talk to? And he touched me and I broke. I cried. And I realized at that moment that I needed to call somebody. And so it's a very hard thing to admit this to ourselves. So you bring up a great point. You are reacting to a lot of stress in your life, and there are a lot of stressors that people encounter that can lead to depression. Uh, you know, most obvious would be grief and reactive depression. And there's so, real grief. Yeah. There's two kinds of depression. What do you do with the person who's depressed for no reason at all? And then what do you do with the person who's depressed and lost a loved one? Or God forbid, you know, something happened to them. So can I tell, am I, can I tell a story? Sure. Probably the, 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 the uh, client that influenced me the most was Mary. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to just refer to her as Mary. Mary's no longer with us. And it's the saddest thing in the world. And Mary came from a very dysfunctional family. She had suicide history in the family. <clears throat> Mary eventually died in an automobile accident. Mary tried to get sober. I couldn't even count how many times. And one day I looked at her and I said, Mary, I noticed you're sober. How long you've been sober? She says, well, it took me 21 years. I said, why did you finally decide to get sober? And she said, because everybody was telling me I should get sober. And I finally realized that I needed to get sober for myself. When I realized I need to get sober for myself, then I got well. This is the message for people who are depressed, the message for men, the message for health. Don't do it because your wife says so. Don't do it because your family says so. You do it for yourself, whether you were married, whether you had kids, whether you're 18, whether you're 98, whether you're 68 or 58, it doesn't matter. If you don't do it for yourself, you relapse. You're the one that has to realize that this is your problem. Own it, deal with it, and then get into recovery. And that is what prevents relapse. Then you can do anything. You can do anything you want and become healthy. So you led into a, uh, I would assume, a fairly common self-treatment meaning to medicate oneself with alcohol or drugs when you're depressed rather than seek treatment. Well, that's the medication, drugs, substance abuse is, uh, come on, that's the number one medication that people use. And, you know, it, the problem is, is that they keep, uh, the reason why it's called abuse is because of when it wears off, you still feel the pain. And if you really think about it, all the detox centers that are around the world, detox is what detox is. Just because you stop drinking, you stop using drugs, it doesn't make the pain away. It doesn't take the pain away. What it does, it makes you more aware of the pain, and that's why the detox centers have therapy and aftercare, because you can only make yourself so numb. But when the numbness wears off, guess what? The dentist will tell you. The tooth will still hurt. You're still going to need root canal. And so depression is one of those things that we, we can't self-medicate unless we make it go away. So let's have individuals at work and co-workers realize that something's going on with this person. What kind of resources can they suggest to the person or what's available? You know, you asked a real loaded question because you're asking a work question. We live in a political time and if somebody notices something, someone is depressed at work, you can walk over some very legal lines which are my advice and you're not going to like my advice, but a person should probably go to human resources first. If they're friends, then basically <clears throat> what's available to them is the computer. 
and the internet. There are churches, there are synagogues, there are doctors, there are physicians, there are social workers. Our society is set up, believe it or not, to handle, and let's not forget the psychiatrists. There are people out there. We are set up. There are pit stops everywhere. Then you come to a guy like me and you say, hey doc, I don't know if I'm depressed or not, or if I've got something else because I suffered a trauma when I was younger. Maybe the depression is coming from the trauma whether it be a a, a war experience, a battle experience, God forbid, an abusive experience in a family or with an uncle, then we diagnose this. Do you know that the tests out there have over 60 years of norms with race, gender, age, and on a scale of a one, the accuracy of these tests are up to a 0.98. Now, these are administered through a psychologist? These are administered through someone like me who is trained, taught, and schooled to do this. And you never want to take the test literally because you've got to, look at, you've got to meet the person first. But what, what's amazing to me is bringing in a kid and knowing how to interpret the test and knowing what to tell a parent and what to tell a child. You've got to be careful. That's for another podcast. But what you want to do is, is as you go ahead and you look at these tests, You know what the first experience I have with these folks is? You have to be kidding me. How did the test pick that up? And I go, because it's good. (laughs) So, again, going to moving somebody into the realm where you're going to be able to see them has to be self-motivated from the person who's depressed. But there is feedback from those around, like we talked about, family and friends, coworkers. Somebody can help that person. What's the best way to do that? The best thing you can do is to never stop telling them what you see. Never be afraid to tell someone what you see. It may be annoying. It may be uncomfortable. It may be something they don't want to hear. But as Jimmy V says, and I love Jimmy V with the V Foundation, he was the basketball coach who passed away for those listeners from South Carolina. Never give up. I would rather be an annoying, neurotic person than, God forbid, have somebody, God forbid, take their life Somebody, God forbid, make a, depress- a, de- a mistake because their judgment is not correct, because they're depressed and they're driving, because they made a mistake with a child. And it's very important to continue to remind this person, I don't see the same person. You look dark today. And after a while, you know, whether the person accepts it or not, at least you're giving some cues, you're giving some reminders. Now let's get personal here. Dr. Pellman has given me advice that has saved my life. Dr. Pellman is a very dear person to me and we've known each other for years. If we look at the history in our relationship, and Dr. Pellman has given me advice, as smart as I'm supposed to be, as intuitive as I'm supposed to be, when I have a relationship with Dr. Pellman, sometimes I can be just as ignorant as someone else. How many times have you told me to do something to help me medically and I've said, yeah, 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 sure. And then you've called me and said, by the way, the appointment's been set. I'll see you next week at three o'clock. And I'll say, but I can't make it. And you'll say, yes, you will. I'll see you at three o'clock and I'm there. And then finally we proceed. It sometimes means you've got to be able to be forceful. You've got to be opinionated, but hear me on this one. It's very important. Wellness only occurs when you do it for yourself. If you do it because someone said so, that's the, that's the igniter, that's the spark. But you now have to own it and take it upon yourself. Take the accountability for recovery. And then there's another question you need to ask here, which is very important. What does it mean to be depressed? It means you have a lifelong illness. It means you will deal with this the rest of your life. 
It's not a bad thing because people now, they exercise, they take walks, their diets change. Sometimes their marriages change. Sometimes they move to a different place. Sometimes they, they have changed relationships with their children. We're talking about a blended family, a blended family uh, society. Sometimes it takes a huge change. I went through, through the trauma that I went through. I looked at my home. I didn't like my home. I took everything and I threw all the stuff out I didn't want people to find when I died. I wanted to keep the stuff that I kept that meant stuff to me. And I took all my baseball cards and all my baseballs and I mounted them and put them up. And I have homework for all of you listeners. I always, uh, we're coming to a close, I'm imagining. I have homework for all of you listeners. There's a marvelous movie you ought to see. And I recommend and require you all see it. It's about the transition of a man and how he becomes more of a human being. It's called Regarding Henry. It was one of Harrison Ford's movies during the Indiana Jones period. Nobody liked it, because they all wanted action stuff from Harrison, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford. And when he made this movie, it was critically panned, and now it's critically acclaimed. It's the story of how a man through a crisis, depression or not, begins to change and become a different human being. And whether you see the movie or not, there's a fabulous line in the movie. And every time I see it, I cry. He's wearing the suit he used to wear. And he looks at his wife, and he starts pulling at the lapels of his suit. And she says, Henry, dear, what's the matter? And he says, you know, I don't even like the suits I used to wear. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. So the good news is, you can change. This is recoverable. You can do different things. Reach out to other people. There are resources out there. We know more about depression than we know about anything. But it can't happen without you taking the initiative. I'm going to say it again. The accountability for being depressed. If you take care of yourself, it makes you healthier. It improves your relationships. And you become a better human being. And between you and I, as my father used to say, you know, there's nothing wrong with being happy. <laughs> Excellent. So just to wrap up, if you wanted to look online, who would you look for, for help? Honestly, if I was going to look for help, I would go ahead and I would write a list of questions and interview these people the way you'd interview a babysitter. But who would the people be? Would you look up psychologists? Or? Again, I'm going to say the same thing. <clears throat> look up whether it's a priest, a minister, a rabbi, a social worker, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. First of all, make sure they're licensed. You want to look up a licensed person, someone who's registered, someone who's licensed. They're not trained to do this. The second thing you want to do is look, look at somebody who has at least been doing this for 20 years, someone who has experience. What you might want to do is ask them for some references. The most important thing you want to do is ask them questions. What is your specialty? What is your approach? Do you deal in depression? How effective are you? Interview them like you're interviewing them for a job. We have to remember there's no difference between me and a car mechanic or a plumber. People hire me to see if I do my job. If I can't do my job, I work for them. They need to ask me, if Dr. Singer, if you're not experienced in this and you can't handle it, please, please tell me. And then, of course, you want to ask your physician for a referral. But don't be afraid to ask the therapist questions. But you want to make sure they're qualified. They've got to have the basic stuff. 
they got to have the basic stuff. Well, there's some excellent plumbers and excellent car mechanics, and we always want them to be working on our plumbing or on our cars. So when we want to deal with our mental health, we want somebody with expertise. So Look, I love cars. I've loved cars since I've been 12 years old, and I have my favorite car, and I don't need to tell you what my favorite car is. But I'm not going to a person who doesn't work on my car and doesn't know how to. And I respect what they can do, just like I can respect a plumber. So that's it works both ways. It works both ways. So finding that person who can help you is available. There are resources online. Or, as you said, it might be somebody in the community. But the important thing is to look for help. The important thing is don't stop looking for help because it's all there. And the important thing is to remember this is not a serious thing. It only gets serious if you sit on it for a long time. And I appeal to all of you, change for yourself, become a better person, because happiness, it's not that far away. It's not that far away. Life's not that big of a struggle, but we just got to work on ourselves a little bit and we'll become a better human being. Excellent closing point. Well, Dr. Singer, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. On the continued episode of Mental Health, we will continue to explore depression. We'll look at the more severe side of depression, and we're going to hear from a psychiatrist who treats depression and is concerned about issues associated with severe depression and suicide. On this episode, of the original guide to men's health, we will continue to explore mental health and depression. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Sung, MD. Dr. Sung did his medical school training at Northwestern University and his residency in psychiatry at the University of Washington. He currently is a acting instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Washington. He works in private practice with his focus in adult and psychotherapy. Dr. Song has also been the instructor for the only state-mandated course on suicide prevention. In Washington State, the legislature mandated that physicians all take a suicide prevention course. So we're fortunate to have a true expert. Dr. Song, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. We'd like to start with depression and review just a general view from a psychiatrist's standpoint. We heard from a psychologist and had a good deal of information, but I'd like for listeners to understand the difference that a psychiatrist might bring to the perspective of depression and mental health. Sure. When a psychiatrist is making a diagnosis of depression, we're thinking about it in terms of the criteria that are established in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So that's the DSM, and it's currently in its fifth edition, so we'll talk about the DSM-5. The, the first the, the first way that we'll think about the syndrome of depression is that we'll make an effort to think about is the person experiencing a major depressive episode. 
So when we talk about the layperson's description of clinical depression in psychiatry, we'll think about it as a major depressive episode. So a major depressive episode will consist of someone having a syndrome of depression that, it la that lasts at least two weeks, and it consists of at least five symptoms out of a list of a total of nine. And at least one of those symptoms has to be one of two of what we call hallmark symptoms. So the hallmark symptoms of depression are depressed mood, so if someone feels sad, blue, low, and or anhedonia, which is loss of interest or pleasure in activity. And so in order to have a depressive episode, someone has to have either depressed mood or anhedonia, so loss of interest, and then it needs to be accompanied by other symptoms. And so those other symptoms could be loss of energy or fatigue, sleep disturbance, which could be insomnia or oversleeping, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, problems with appetite, problems with concentration, feeling like someone is slowed down or has more energy, like feeling restless, or th thoughts that they would be better off dead or of suicide. And so if someone has at least five out of these symptoms for at least two weeks at a time, and at least one of those symptoms is depressed mood or anhedonia, then we'll make a diagnosis of a major depressive episode. And so a major depressive episode then can occur as a component of a number of different mental disorders. And so the most common mental disorder that we would think about with major depressive episodes would be major depressive disorder. So major depressive disorder means that someone has one or more episodes of major depression. Major depressive episodes can also occur in bipolar disorders. So bipolar disorders, bi or two poles, means that someone has episodes where their mood is either elevated or irritable. And so that would be a hypomanic or manic episode. And then those hypomanic and manic episodes also will include episodes of major depression. So when we think about the syndrome of depression, we'll diagnose a major depressive episode. And then the major depressive episode can occur within a depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. So that gives you sort of a sense of how a psychiatrist is thinking about a diagnosis of depression. So how would someone get to a psychiatrist? That's the sort of view of the public is you have to be really off the deep end to go to psychiatry, but other people, I think, go for improvement and therapy. And when somebody's seeing a, another healthcare practitioner, how do they get to you? People can come to a psychiatrist through a, a variety of different venues. So in the United States, the, the majority of antidepressant medications are prescribed through primary care. And so I would say that one avenue where someone would come to see a psychiatrist is that they are already seeing a primary care doctor. The primary care doctor has made a diagnosis of depression and sometimes even has initiated treatment, including an antidepressant for depression. And then if that primary care doctor or if the person themselves is interested in more specialized consultation, then the primary care doctor can make a referral to see a psychiatrist. And it's the case that sometimes there are primary care clinics that have psychiatrists who are working in the clinic. So one avenue would be through a referral through primary care. And then people sometimes will see a, a, so a non-medical psychotherapist as well. So, see, so people might be seeing a psychologist or a social worker or a licensed mental health counselor for psychotherapy. And then if that person is having more persistent problems or if that person is having difficulty participating in the psychotherapy, so if their symptoms of depression are severe enough that they're having problems participating in talk therapy or psychotherapy, sometimes the therapist can make a referral to a psychiatrist. And then sometimes there's people who will self-refer to a 
psychiatrist at, as well. And so you can get a referral sometimes through an insurance company or sometimes people can ask their primary care doctor or sort of through w- word of mouth. So those are some different ways people might come to see a psychiatrist. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that we previously covered with our psychologist, but is it reasonable that people would recognize that they're depressed or is it somebody else who recognizes that they're depressed? I think that in regard to recognition of depression per se, I would say that it's, I couldn't quote you a statistic one way or the other. I think that it's different for different people. So I would say that there's sometimes when people uh, experience depression, and I think especially when people start to get to know themselves, I have heard that people say that they have had episodes where their mood was low, and it always seemed to be attached to an event in their life. So they had just moved somewhere new, or they had started a new job, or they had lost a relationship, and then they felt depressed. And then finally, they had an episode of depression that did not seem connected with any kind of external event. And that's what put it together in their mind that maybe they were experiencing a depressive disorder per per se. And so sometimes people self-recognize that. And then in other times, maybe there's friends or family members that recognize that maybe someone is just not not themselves. And so it, it could be another clinician who recognizes it too. More and more in primary care clinics, there's screening for depression. And so primary care doctors will come, or primary care doctors really, and psychiatrists too, will use screening devices, including a very common one called the Patient Health Questionnaire 9 or the PHQ-9. And so this is something that can be self-administered. And so people can go online and download the public domain document, the PHQ-9, sort of self-fill it out and get a sense, like, do they have the syndrome of depression? Since this is a podcast on uh, male health, is there a sense that guys come later to recognizing they have problems than women? The overall sense is that uh, men present for all, all kinds of healthcare issues later than women. So present less and present later. And so such would be true for mental health conditions as well. So less presentations for depression and then potentially later presentations for, for depression as well. And then with the diagnosis of depression that you previously had referred uh, to, is generally a psychiatrist going to be utilizing medication or is individualized? I think that in the field of psychiatry, medications represent one treatment strategy. And so depending on the individual characteristics and depending on the severity of the depression, a psychiatrist might recommend a combination of lifestyle changes, psychotherapy, or medication treatment or some combination. So by the time someone is experiencing more moderate to severe depression, that often implies uh, that use of antidepressant medication. But the syndrome of depression does not necessitate medication treatment. And if we then move to a spectrum of depression that is more significant, where somebody becomes so depressed and they're not responding and moves to a consideration of suicide, uh, which is really what I want to explore with you, uh, is that a, a that's the end spectrum, the deep end of depression? I think that depression with suicidality would be considered more severe depression. The diagnosis of a major depressive episodes episode includes whether or not someone is having suicidal thoughts. And so if we look at the screening tool or assessment tool, the PHQ-9, the ninth question is in the past two weeks, how often have you been bothered by thoughts that you would be better off dead or of hurting yourself in some way? And so our screening or assessment tool includes a question about suicidal 
ideation. And so typically we can think of depression as it becomes more severe, it can include suicidal ideation. I think an important caveat of this is that there are many times where suicidal thoughts are not necessarily part of the syndrome of depression, that it's possible to have suicidal ideation or for people to die by suicide without having the syndrome of depression. So there's many people who have the syndrome of depression who do not have suicidal thoughts. And then there are also many people who die by suicide or who have suicidal thoughts who do not have the syndrome of depression either. So what circumstances would somebody not be depressed who might be suicidal? Well, I think especially for men, if we look at the data from our National Violent Death Reporting System, so the National Violent Death Reporting System is a program where states receive funding so that medical examiners can conduct more in-depth analyses of people who have died in suicide or homicide or other violent death. The statistics will suggest that among men who have died by suicide, that it's the minority of them who have depressed mood. So it's probably running something around 40%, which suggests that around 60% of men who have died by suicide don't necessarily have depressed mood. And so the, the finding is that among men and possibly among people in general, that the people who have died by suicide oftentimes are characterized by more severe life circumstances or crises. So that could be marital or family conflict, that could be domestic violence, that could be some kind of legal problem. So recently arrested, recently in jail, it could be a financial crisis, or it could be an employment problem. And so all of these might also occur in the setting of alcohol use. And so I would say that especially for men, depression per se or a major depressive episode is not necessarily associated with with suicide. And so for for men, it might be uh, stressful, high-level life circumstances that plus minus alcohol use that would have the stronger association with suicide, especially if those are occurring in the setting of firearm ownership too. Well, let's explore that concept of uh, suicide in somebody who isn't depressed, who has life circumstances that have brought them to this point where they feel that's the only uh, way out. Yeah, it's an important question. The finding is that part of the human condition is to have stressful life circumstances. And so having stressful life circumstances in and of themselves is not necessarily associated with dying by suicide. And so in the field of clinical suicidology, sometimes we will talk about what we call direct and indirect drivers of suicide. So for example, An indirect driver of suicide would be a life circumstance that is associated or increases someone's risk for suicide. Life circumstances that are indirect drivers might be family or marital conflict, unemployment, social isolation. And so as we've mentioned, the vast, vast majority of people who have these stressful life circumstances or indirect drivers do not go on to die by suicide. And so it seems to be a very particular way of interpreting or experiencing life circumstances that drives a minority of people to think about suicide. And so in clinical suicidology, we'll talk about the term direct drivers of suicide. So a direct driver of suicide would be a way that someone interprets or experiences their life events in a way that causes them to think about suicide. So, and the, the direct drivers of suicide are based on different kinds of psychological theories we have. So for example, one uh, that leading psychological theory is called the interpersonal theory of suicide, and that was developed by uh, Dr. Thomas 
Joyner, who is a psychologist uh, in Florida. So Thomas Joyner says that people develop the desire for death and want to kill themselves when they interpret their life circumstances according to what he says is thwarted belongingness, which means people who are trying to connect and feeling blocked in their connections with other people. So thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, so people who feel like they are worthless and that others would be better off without them. And then this final component of hopelessness, that they feel like that this will never change. So Thomas Joyner says that people start to wish that they were dead and think about killing themselves when they interpret their life circumstances according to thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, and hopelessness. So I'll give you an example of that. So I've treated patients who have experienced the early death of their mother. So we talk about early maternal loss. For example, one person who has lost his mother at a young age thinks she was everything to me. She was the most important person in my life. I feel so lonely without her. I feel unbearably alone. I feel like there is no value to my life, and I don't think that this will ever get better. I wish I could die. I want to kill myself so that I can join her. And so this would be an interpretation of early maternal loss according to thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, and hopelessness. And so another person who has lost his mother at a young age might say, I lost my mother. It was extremely difficult and sad. And now I know that she is all around me. She's all around me. I have her in my heart. I know that she looks after me and I think about her and I talk about her all the time. I feel her living presence still with me. And so this is the exact same life circumstance of losing someone at a young age. And it's interpreted and experienced in very different ways. And so when we think about who is the person who might die by suicide, it would be the person who has a direct driver of suicide. And so one of the one set of direct drivers would be the thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, uh, and hopelessness. There are other direct drivers too. Sometimes I'll talk about the idea that suicide has a storyline. So when you talk to people who are thinking about suicide, the, the description or the narrative of the events might come across uh, as a particular kind of storyline. So the storyline includes, as we've discussed, the thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, hopelessness. There's another theory of depression and suicidality that comes from mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. This is a group out of England with Mark Williams. They will say that people will start thinking about suicide when they interpret their life circumstances according to feeling defeated and trapped. So defeat and entrapment. So not only are you failing in life, you are trapped in these circumstances that, that will never change. And so common storylines to suicidal processes will include the interpersonal theory toward belongingness, perceived burdensome hopelessness, or people who will talk about feeling like they are a failure and that they are trapped and that will never change. Other direct drivers of suicide might also be the way that suicide, and the term that I'll use sometimes is that suicide is an intoxicant. So suicide is, has a storyline and then suicide also functions as an intoxicant. So if you've talked to people who have gone through a suicidal crisis, sometimes the language that they will use is that it's like I was in a trance. It's like I wasn't myself. It's like something took over. 
And so they will talk about being preoccupied with suicide. So I've heard about people that say, I didn't know, it's like something came over me and I just started swallowing pills. Or it's like I wasn't myself, I just like picked up the knife and started cutting. And so, or I, I would walk into a room and just start looking at places where I could kill myself. And so this intoxicating aspect of suicide, we, we will describe as a multi-component process. So some event will happen and then mood will change and then hopeless thoughts will arise. So this thought, it's never going to get better. And then it, the, the, the aperture of the mind or someone's thinking will start to shrink down and we call that selective attention. So people will just start thinking about all of the negative things in their life. So whereas there are many components of their life, there are many potentially hopeful, there are many potentially positive or optimistic parts of their life, the suicidal process of selective attention will be that their mind starts shrinking down and that everything in my life is wrong, I can't do anything right, that nothing is working, I am a failure. And then after selective attention, the mind will further shrink down into a process that we call attentional fixation. And so with attentional fixation, the aperture of the mind shrinks maximally into thinking that suicide is the only escape from pain and hopelessness. And so someone starts off with hopeless thoughts, mind shrinks down and is focusing on negative aspects of life, and then mind shrinks down maximally to selective uh, attention, attentional fixation, and then suicide is the only escape from pain and hopelessness. And so people who have gone through suicidal processes or suicidal crises will sometimes describe having been intoxicated uh, with suicide uh, in this way. I had a brief glimpse into perhaps the behavior of somebody who's down that pathway. What can we have that person do to move out of that behavior? That's the first part. And what can we do for those around that person to help move that person out of that pathway? In terms of thinking about suicidal behavior, sometimes we'll talk about, uh, or I'll talk about suicide, that suicide is an action that people take. So you have to do something with your body to attempt suicide. And it's an action that's associated with potentially multiple motivations. And so suicide is an action, and then the multiple motivations might include emotion regulation, problem solving, and communication. So for example, emotion regulation would be people who are experiencing overwhelming emotional pain and thinking, this will never end. I need to do something to stop the pain, stop or reduce the pain. And so that would be an emotion regulation function of suicide. Problem solving might be if someone is facing overwhelming problems in their life, they can't find a solution, they feel defeated and trapped, suicide is the only way to solve these problems. And then finally, communication. Sometimes people uh, engage in suicidal behavior that sends a message uh, to other people. So I would say a lower percentage of the time, but we, we don't say that it doesn't exist. Sometimes suicidal behavior has a punishment or revenge component to it. Sometimes suicidal behavior has the, uh, a component of communicating to other people how much pain that they're in. And so the, the reason that I try to be specific about thinking about suicide as an action that has potentially multiple motivations is that if we can figure out what is the motivation of the suicidal behavior, so if it's reduce emotions, can we find an alternative action to decrease the intensity of the emotion? If it's about problem solving, can we find an alternative viable pathway that doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but that makes the problem into something that can be bearable and that can be worked through over time? And if the function of suicidality is communication, 
can we substitute an alternative action, a more effective way or a different way to communicate anger towards other people or a, a different way to get the emotional needs recognized? Uh, and so in regard to what people can do themselves, I think that if there's some kind of self-recognition that the suicidal process is starting and that the mind is processing the information according to these storylines, so that if you can recognize that your mind is telling you, oh, there's that thought I'm that I'm a burden again, that other people are going to be better off without me. So if you can recognize that as a component of the suicidal process, it's possible to then tell yourself that there are alternative storylines that are possible as well and that typically suicidal processes or suicidal crises are time limited so everything that a person can do to delay acting on the suicidal behavior while they're giving themselves times to develop new perspective that would be one way of um, addressing suicidal thoughts so sometimes we'll talk about mindfulness-based interventions so mindfulness means being aware of suicidal thoughts being aware of suicidal feelings and allowing them to pass over time because suicidal thoughts and feelings are uh, are often self-limiting. In regard to what to do about addressing suicide as an intoxicant, this is another place where there's a role for mindfulness-based interventions, that it's possible actually to recognize that you're in the middle of an intoxicated process. So sometimes when we, like our culture has shifted so that if someone is uh, drinking alcohol, you give your keys to another person. And so you recognize that some intoxicating process is happening and you don't want to engage in risky, dangerous behavior. Behavior. So I think that analogously, if people can recognize that their mind is shrinking down and that they're starting to think about suicide, this is actually an abnormal thought process and that typically it will be time limiting. So just as you would give your keys to someone else, if you own firearms under these circumstances, you can store your firearms uh, temporarily off-site for a while. And then recognizing that the suicidal process might be a temporary or time-limited process, it can be possible to develop a safety plan so that people can come up with a list of distracting techniques or a list of distracting people that they can talk to to get through that suicidal crisis, recognizing that it will probably end over time and that it won't last forever. So those are some of the things that we can do. So become more aware of suicidal storylines, become more aware that the mind is shrinking down, finding alternative ways of responding, finding ways to reduce immediate access to a lethal method of suicide, including firearms, and then thinking through if some someone is, if the suicidal behavior is about emotion regulation, problem solving, and communication, block the suicidal behavior, find an alternative strategy to try to feel better, find viable solutions to problems, or communicate uh, distress. And you have uh, descri <clears throat> described someone who is becoming more emotionally isolated and may not seek help. Is there a way that they could contact a helpline or some strategy with uh, a person who really doesn't want to engage other people but realizes they're in trouble? Sure. There, there are some uh, crisis resources that are uh, available to, to people, and these are nationally available resources. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a number that people can call. It's one 800 273 8255. 
So this is a number that people can use and be put in touch with a trained crisis counselor who can walk them through what they might be able to do to manage a suicidal crisis. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one resource. Another resource that can be used is called the Crisis Text Line. So a Crisis Text Line will also put you in touch with a trained crisis counselor. And so this is done by text message. So you can uh, text START or HELLO to 741-741 on your phone and then you can have a text conversation with someone who can talk you through a crisis. Crisis intervention line again is? Sure. The the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the number is 1-800-273-8255. If you live in an area, so for example in Seattle, uh, in King County, if you live in an area where there is a local crisis line that is contracted with a national crisis line, if you call the national number, it will automatically roll over to your local crisis line so that you can get uh, more local resources. And of course, if somebody walked into an emergency room, that would be an option for them. Sure, yeah. It, it's also possible uh, to, to seek emergency assistance. And so uh, if someone's in a suicidal crisis, um, if it's not possible to keep someone safe uh, as an outpatient, it's always possible to bring someone to an emergency department uh, to, to keep them safe. I would actually sort of recommend giving the crisis line a call first. The, the emergency department can be a relatively chaotic place. And so if something can be managed as an outpatient or if someone can be talked through a crisis uh, with a local crisis line, and if a local crisis line can also make a recommendation for some local resources, including outpatient uh, debt treatment, that that, that that tends to be preferable and less disruptive to someone's life than an emergency department visit. But it's true that the emergency department is always available as a potential resource too. And how would you have people who may be concerned about using the term suicide approach a friend or a family member, somebody that they know, a coworker, who they're worried about, they think there's a change, and uh, they, they might be concerned that the person is considering that, but they don't want to embarrass the person. What would you tell them to do? Sure. I, I think that uh, the, the first step, and I think that one of the most important steps that we talk about in thinking about how do we approach the problem of suicide or think about suicide, uh, th- there's a whole category uh, that we call attitudes and approach, like how do we think about or understand suicidal processes. For example, uh, in my work with people who are at risk of suicide, the majority of people who go through suicidal processes do not go on to die by suicide. And so I think that in my clinical experience, I get the opportunity to see people survive the crisis and emerge from it in a way where they have recovered and overcome the suicidal crisis. And so I think it's important to have established in your mind a storyline where someone goes through a dark time, is able to either access resources internally within themselves or through other people, and then is able to emerge from it in a way where they are successful. So I think it's important to have that storyline in your mind. I, I, I have seen in presentations, and I think about sometimes the idea of the, the the story of Ulysses in the Odyssey as he is traversing the waters w- with the, the sirens. And so there's the idea that Ulysses is clever and shrewd, known to be clever and shrewd, and that he instructs his men to tie him to the mast of the ship so that he can d- traverse the sirens and hear the song without d- being killed and being drawn into the, the sirens and destroying the ship. And so I think that suicidal processes can be so, sort of of analogous that it doesn't have to be that someone is 
mentally ill or that someone is so weak that they can't um, that control themselves. I, I think that uh, an alternative storyline around it is that it does take someone who is clever and shrewd to be able to recognize the suicidal processes occurring and take steps to ensure that they're not uh, d- destroyed on the rocks uh, d- in the process. So I think that the most important step, if you're thinking about approaching someone who's thinking about suicide, is to have an alternative storyline in your mind that this is typically a story of hope and recovery. And so if you're approaching someone who's thinking about suicide, the the recommended uh, language is to be more direct about suicide. So reference what you have observed. So typically these conversations are not coming out of the blue. If you're worried about something, usually it has to do with something you have seen or heard. And so you can say, I have I have seen that you seem more depressed. I have seen that you seem sort of withdrawn. It's like you're not interested uh, in things anymore. I, I'm wondering that when things get bad for you, if it ever gets to the point where you're thinking of taking your own life. And so the first step in what we call gatekeeper training or a, a role where we can see people and do an initial screening and then uh, get a referral for them is to recognize warning signs and then typically ask directly about suicide. The, the general um, response for people who have gone through suicidal processes or suicidal states is that it is a relief to be able to talk openly about suicidal thoughts and feelings. And so I would say that if uh, you're in a position to approach someone, keep that in mind, that like the, the person that you're talking to, if it's on your mind, then it's potentially on their mind as well. And that if you give them an open opportunity to talk about it, sometimes they feel relief and they are, uh, they're glad that there's a safe place to talk about it. Do you have other warning signs, uh, somebody obviously makes an attempt and fails, you'd be uh, watching that person more closely, but something not quite so obvious. What are some of the other indicators that somebody from the outside might pick up on? So just a, a brief note about the, the language around suicide. So we, we don't tend to refer to someone having failed a suicide attempt insofar as like we, we, we don't want to use language around like someone died by suicide and that was a success or that they didn't die and, that, and so that was a failure. And so that, that's a little bit of like a, a language from the field. In regard to other warning signs of suicide, so we have the idea that there are warning signs of suicide that correlate with near-term risk of suicidal behavior. And so we talk about risk factors. Risk factors would be like having a mental health condition. Risk factors might be um, the, the family or marital conflict, unemployment, social isolation. And that these are sometimes more distant. So like obviously not everyone who's going through a difficult time in their marriage is thinking about suicide. And so as a result, we talk sometimes about what are the warning signs of suicide. And so I think that one of the careful things that we want to make sure that we note is that we do not actually have data to suggest that people who have warning signs of suicide necessarily then go on to attempt suicide or die by suicide. So we talk about the concept of warning signs, and we believe that warning signs might correlate with near-term risk of suicidal behavior, but we actually do not know this to be true. So if someone has warning signs, you can use those to start the conversation with suicide. I would not want to suggest that warning signs actually predict suicide. So, so with that caveat in mind, some of the signs that have been proposed as warning signs, so include suicidal ideation, so someone talking about suicide, substance use, so someone who is using more or has started using drugs or alcohol, 
uh, purposelessness, so feeling like a burden, so someone who's talking about, I don't want to trouble people anymore. Um, sometimes uh, the anger or recklessness, uh, people who are having problems with sleep, so sleep disturbance, and sometimes sleep disturbance, specifically like the simultaneous use of alcohol and sleeping medication has been proposed as a warning sign uh, of suicide. And then sometimes people who are feeling uh, or thinking about suicide will feel trapped, as we had described before. Hopelessness uh, is sometimes another uh, warning sign of suicide. And then mood changes uh, as well. And so we don't have, so any of these warning signs of suicide typically will say that they should be in clinical constellation. So what that means is that if someone just has one or two warning signs of suicide, or one of the warning signs of suicide, that might be part of their normal baseline. So that's sort of how they always are. And so when we talk about warning signs of suicide, they're meant to be read together, that someone has a new set of behaviors and that it seems unusual for them and that they seem to be occurring together. And so those are some of the other potential warning signs of suicide. But again, I want to be really clear that people who die by suicide don't necessarily have warning signs that can be recognized. And the fact is that sometimes when people have warning signs of suicide, even people who have warning signs, the vast majority of them do not go on to attempt suicide or die by suicide. And uh, as we're getting close to the end of our time, uh, the concept of caring letters kind of carried out into the community. Uh, if you knew somebody who was having a hard time and may have had an attempt and comes back, they may be at increased risk. And uh, just the concept of caring letters or somebody who cares in, the, in their community, helping them through that time and beyond. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up. So the, the intervention that probably has the strongest evidence for preventing actual suicide death is called fostering connectedness. So connectedness as an emotional sense of, of being a part of a community or being connected with another person. And so this is research data that's taken from, as you indicate, a study called Caring Letters, that there, were, there was a researcher named Jerome Motto who uh, worked with his statistician, Alan Bostrom, where they took people who did not want mental health treatment, and then they sent about half of them a letter in the mail called the caring letter that basically said, we're thinking about you, you matter to us. And the, the remarkable simplicity of this uh, intervention, I think, is matched only by the remarkable effectiveness of it, which is that the people who received the caring letter were about half as likely to die by suicide in this very high-risk period of time of about two years out from their psychiatric hospitalization. And so one of the proposed series of mechanisms of the caring letter is that if someone is thinking about suicide, then they have thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, and hopelessness, and we can counteract those messages by offering them a sense of belonging, value, and hope. So by communicating to someone, we're going to get through this together, you matter to me, we're going to get through it, I, I value you, you're important, you have purpose, you have value in life, and I have hope for you, we can get through this together. So giving someone a sense of belonging, value, and hope, fostering connectedness with someone who is at risk of suicide, being unequivocal in your message, and making sure that you have said those words is probably one of the most powerful interventions we have for preventing actual suicide death. Well, I think on that, we have uh, covered a lot of ground, and, and the human condition leaves us with human condition, which is humans like or should be 
with other humans and not isolated. So we want to give those people love. I think that that's a great message. Uh, and I think that when the field of suicidology has increasingly incorporated the voices of people with what we say is lived experience or suicide attempt survivors, that the, the message sort of consistently is the importance of fostering connectedness and the importance of offering hope as well. That when we talk about the, the field of suicidology and think about suicide prevention, that this value of connection and the value of hope is something that I think deserves just as much emphasis as thinking about like the statistics about who dies by suicide. That again, the majority of people who are at risk of suicide do not go on to die by suicide. And so therefore, we have a pretty solid foundation for thinking about that there is hope and that there is value for connectedness. Well, Dr. Sung, thank you. This has been enlightening. And I guess if I was going to wrap up, it would be to people listening, if you know somebody you're concerned about, don't shy away from the conversation. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you. This completes another podcast chapter of the Washington State Urology Society's original Guide to Men's Health. This is Dr. Richard Pellman reminding you to take care of yourself. The Washington State Urology Society wishes to thank all contributors who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The Society also wishes to thank Sean Fox for his invaluable technical assistance, Music theme, San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. Dave Whitig. The podcasts are the property of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the express consent of the society is strictly prohibited. For more information about men's health, visit wsus.org or visit your physician or care provider.